The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. How to safeguard your church against sexual abuse. So let me say from the outset, I can't talk about all this. That would take all day. But what I really hope that you'll do is avail yourself to ministrysafe.com. They are uh, out of Texas. They just held a conference here in Greensboro a few months ago. But Ministry Safe is the largest company, website, whatever you want to think of, and their teaching is really phenomenal on, uh, and it will scare you too as you listen to it. You will hear how abusers are able to take advantage of people when you're not even watching. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Um, So I'm going to give you as much as I can in one hour. And I want to show you the video first. And my wife said last night, are you sure that you want to show this? This is public. It has been seen many times. So I'm not showing anything that hadn't been seen before. What you're first going to see is this is a news report from CBS News. And it was on all the stations about two young guys who were in a church together when their youth pastor abused them. So that's the story they're going to tell. And then we'll go from there. So let's pray. Father, we come to you because we uh, live in a day when abusive people walk right in the door of the church, and sometimes we don't have our act together enough to know who they are, what they're doing, or how even to stop them. Lord, this is new for many churches and old for others. Many have been doing this for years, but some churches haven't done anything about this uh, for a lot of reasons. And so, Lord, I pray that just during this time, Uh, We could be aware of all that is happening, and we could be wise so that we know what to do next to protect your church. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to read one verse to you, and it's Acts 20, 28. There's a lot of implications for the verse, but the verse says in Acts 20, 28, Paul says this, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among you which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased by his own blood. So in other words, you know, if you're shepherding a church, you better remember he gave his life for this. And so taking care of the people in your church is not just an idea. It's a commandment in scripture that we take care of the people that are in our church. So I'll tell you a couple stories that you're going to go, What? Okay, how do you safeguard your church against sexual abuse? Well, I gave you a couple of um, definitions where you can write them down or just let them sink in. Abuse, just the word abuse itself by Becky Castle Miller. I like what she said. A pattern of coercive control based in an abuser's feeling of entitlement to power over another person. In other words, they feel a pastor's Uh, People at church often feel empowered that they can take advantage of somebody else. Now, child sexual abuse, here's a great definition. Unwanted sexual activity with perpetrators using force, making threats, or taking advantage of victims not able to give consent. Now, I'll be happy to send you uh, the PowerPoint. So you can just send me an email to ethompson at ncbaptist.org, and I'll send this to you, and you won't have to remember it or even write it down. So just send it to Eddie Thompson at ethompson at ncbaptist.org. I'll send you the whole thing. So that way you can use it yourself when you need to, and uh, hope that you will. So I think what I've been learning over the last uh, couple of years uh, it's been really important for me because as I walk, when I walk into a bigger church and talk about this, they go, we understand it. But when I walk into a small church and explain this, you wouldn't believe the looks on their faces. And here's what I often get back from older church members. Are you saying, I've been going here 50 years. Are you saying that you want to run a background check on me? Are you saying that? Yes, I am. You mean you don't trust me? That doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, this is, so here's an argument I want you to use. If you want young couples to come to your church, you have to do this. Because you see, at the Little League field where my grandkids play, they run a background check on all the coaches. 
And, uh, you know, when they go to school, they run a background check on all the teachers. And what you see in the news just today again was a teacher who exploded in a classroom and they're asking the question, did you run a background check on that substitute teacher? And the school system's going, uh, uh, we don't know. So when I say to those older church members, listen, if you want your church not to reach any young people, then just keep doing it like this. It's not that we don't trust you. But you ought to be modeling for those other people how to do it well. And typically what they say is, okay, but you're not saying you don't trust me, right? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'll be the first one to take it myself. Okay, I'll be first and our other staff members. Now, if a staff member suddenly quits, that might not be a good sign because, you know, maybe there's something in this background. So now, what does background check mean? Now, this is where ministry safe really comes in. I don't mean this. But you should do this. You can run, if you just look on your phone very quickly, you can find the sexual offender registry in North Carolina within 10 seconds on your phone. And I can, this is what I do. I go look to see if there's anybody in my community all the time. Is there anybody in my community or around my, ch- my grandchildren who are on the sexual offender registry? You, people say, that's so hard to find out it costs. No. This is free. You can find it in 10 seconds. You just put in where your zip code, and it'll tell you everybody. You put in their name, it'll tell you if they're on the list. I go look for myself all the time on there. Yeah, I just want to make sure that somebody is not. My, so my real name is Robert. There's a lot of Robert Thompson in this world, and there's a lot of them on the sexual offender registry. So they're not me, but you should type in to see who is who. Now... Once in a while, by doing so, you will find somebody already in your church that's on it that you didn't even know. Uh, Will we have to do something about that? Sure. Yes, we will. So, this is what what it looks like. So, we saw that. Let me go the other way. So, first of all, we want to prevent sexual abuse before it starts. So, if we, you know, there's an old saying about an, an ounce of prevention is worth what? I never knew what that meant until I applied it to this. And now I really get that old saying very easily. If I can prevent, if I can start this and pre, uh, prevent it before it ever gets started, and I'll show you a great way to do that in just a second. And uh, we'll see some ways right here. First of all, you need, as J.D. Greer has said, we need to communicate to your church's clear stance on sexual abuse from the pulpit in a full sermon, not... You know, by the way, on Wednesday night, we're going to talk about this for just 10 minutes. No, I'm talking about saying it out loud, creating uh, awareness of all the church members at one time. This way, you don't, you don't have to do this in the back room. So, you know, when I teach staff members, if I have staff, we walk them through this first. And then we walk the whole church through it. Now, there's always pushback every time. So... I was at, uh, in Asheville not long ago. I had a lot of pastors there. We walked through this. And do you know, one of the pastors even pushed back on it. And I said, so brother, what's bothering you? He said, first of all, I'm a Methodist. I said, never mind. So I'm kidding. That was true, though. And I said, so what are you doing with the Baptist? He said, I always come to learn from y'all because we don't really teach anything to our pastors. So y'all teach a lot to your pastors. So I'm always interested. But he had some great questions that our Baptist guys hadn't even thought of yet. As a matter of fact, I haven't even thought of some of those. So now number two, now here's what I'm going to say that won't be popular at all. J.D. Greer had it right. And before I even saw what he said, a lot of times our church members are so good at work, but they're so lazy at church. Because here's why. When I ask them to create policies and procedures, you, they will act like they've never seen one in their entire life. And I'll say, so don't you have one at work? Oh, yeah. So why is it hard to do at church? That's just a lot of work. We didn't come for this. So somebody in your church. Now, here's the beauty of this. Now, I'm going to tell you what not to do. Now, this is what churches call me and say, can you send me the ones that you use? yes, but you can't copy and paste it as yours. You've got to work through this yourself to make it sound like yours. Okay, you can start with mine if you want to, but you quickly better make it your own or it's going to sound like one in Raleigh, not one, you know, in Grassy Branch. 
So what's it sound like at your church? So sure, you might want to start with this, but you've got to create your own policies and this is going to be hard work and it might take you a year to do it. Now there's plenty of help for you today, but please just don't copy and paste. What that means is that all the people in the church didn't go through it. You say, I just wanted to get one down, so a couple of us did it, and we stuck it in our, in our policy and procedure book. So don't, don't do it that way. But we got to communicate your church's clear stance, but you can't do that until you create policies and procedures. You say, well, I'm just not very administrative. I bet there's somebody in your church that is. I guarantee you there are people who have the gift of administration, and they are really good at this, and they would love for you to ask them to help by, by all means. You know, I remember a church, one of my first churches I ever pastored, they wanted to update the Constitution and bylaws, and I said, I'm out. I'm not your guy. I don't have the patience for that. So let's make sure we get somebody in there uh, who does. Number three, we're going to start by screening all staff and volunteers first. Yes, sir, please do. I understand what you're saying. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's really easy for a church to say has a couple hundred active members or better. You're likely to have all kinds of gifted, talented people to do all kinds of things. When you have a church that has 30 people and the average age is 70 or greater, it's a lot harder to find an administrative person. It even help people understand what you're trying to convey to make it clear and update for that church, that particular church. Because they need to be able to reach young couples or they're going to die. Right. And so that's the kind of situation that we're in. I want some kind of guideline that says, here's where you start, okay. this is the next step, this is the next step, this is the next step. Just give me that. I think the best thing to do, and you'll see it in just a minute, is to invite an expert to, you, to your building and you not try it yourself. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. So I love your passion for it. If you'll send me an email, I will send you a policy procedure that you can put into place until you can take it and expand it. <laughs> You can see how difficult this is in a small church. And by the way, half of our churches have left, you know, about 75 people or less in attendance now. So as those numbers fall, we have a lot of churches less than 50. So now this becomes more and more difficult the smaller it gets. Okay, so we're going to start by screening all of our staff and volunteers. The first thing that people will ask when we're explaining this is, Pastor, staff members, did you take do this first? Did the deacons already do this? So once, uh, and there's plenty of screening. So we use at the Baptist State Convention, we use a company here in Greensboro to screen all of our staff and volunteers, and it only cost $11 for a person to do it. So number four, we're going to teach what you believe about sexual abuse. I left out a word there. In a sermon on Sunday morning, from the pulpit. Now there's a good reason for doing this, a really good reason. Don't relegate this to any other time or it seems trivial. But when you do it, you're also telling potential abusive people in the building, you're warning them by talking about it publicly. So does it make sense? So when you preach on it, you're saying to the people sitting out there, this is what we're talking about. And so that itself right there, but you got, don't say, we're going to talk about this on Sunday night. So we're going to do it if we can. Now learn about it first. I, you know, just don't jump in there and say, well, we're going to, we're going to suddenly start this. Learn about it first. Learn what you want to say, because just like my brother here just asked me, you're going to be asked questions. And so you might be bombarded with questions. So I think we'll see in a second. One of the best things to do is to invite an expert to your church, even if it's 30, and let them talk about it because then the church, you know, honestly, sometimes they just receive it better from somebody on the outside. This is a very personal subject. People don't know what to do with it because there are a lot of people. Um, We just seen another story that just came out of how many women were sexually abused by the time they are 15 or 18. The number is shocking. But, you know, we often don't talk about the guys, which is what that video was just about we saw a while ago. I went back after the convention. I said, guys, I've had a background check, and the other staff had it. Now we need all the children workers to have their background check. And I asked them, he said, well, we don't know if those kids have been here for 30 years. Yeah. 
yes. with the kids, and that would just be too offensive. Or, I don't understand. If you don't have anything in the background, why, why worry? Yeah, but that's not the case. What they're saying is you don't trust me. So honestly, we should get there. We should print up a document and get their permission in writing to do it. I did have a guy one time say, you can run a background check, but you cannot run an insurance background check, which interesting we, which interesting we don't do. But he said, if you run an insurance background check, I'll leave. Have a great day, because whatever you're hiding, you just gave it away to me for some reason. So we don't even run insurance. So we're talking about running your driver's license for, uh, so, but we should get, make a sheet. We should have a form that everybody signs. Just like if you're going to hire somebody, you should get their permission before you hire them in writing. Matter of fact, when somebody sends in information to us, we always say, you didn't get their, you didn't get their permission. You should. They shouldn't, it should not come out. So, uh, just as something that's very private. So this is not a private thing. This is a public thing. So you should get there. That was a good question, though. Okay, don't allow non-sexual predators on your church grounds whenever children are present. Now, so let me just tell you what the law says about this. i got to go quicker. I have a law, and you can see it online. Now, the law had been, uh, for the last number of years, that a sexual predator is not allowed on your church property. Now, that law was partially struck down by a federal judge two years ago. The problem is they never replaced it with anything else. Now, it is against the law for them to come to the North Carolina State Fair and be on the fairgrounds. Somebody was just arrested for that during the recent NC State Fair, North Carolina Fair over this thing right here. But here's what happened just recently. So it's not illegal for them to come on church property, but it's not smart. So a church called me, I just went, and here's what it looked like. The pastor said, you're going to have to help our deacons understand this. The deacons want to allow it. So one sexual predator, he said that he wasn't really guilty. By the way, if you ever hear this, it's not your job to decide if somebody's guilty. It's the court's job to decide if somebody's guilty or not. So here's what they wanted. That guy wanted to invite five other men who are on the sexual offender registry. He wanted to bring them to church during the church hours where he was going to minister to them in another area. So this is where um, the deacons were saying, well, maybe, I mean, this is an opportunity to really minister to those guys. The pastor is saying, I think that's illegal. So number one, it's not illegal because it was struck down. But it's not wise. Just because it's not illegal doesn't mean it's wise. So when I went and met with them, we went through the whole scenario. And I said, so let, let's, just, let's just talk about the liability of it just a second. So if you invite them during church, are you going to guard all these? So the rule is that you've got to watch them. You've got to watch them every second they're on your property. Every second. Now, it takes a couple people to do this. So you've got to follow them. They, according to J.D. Greer at the summit, they first, when they come, they have to confess who they are right when they walk in the door. Secondly, you have to give them a sheet of rules and regulations. Thirdly, two people have to follow them everywhere they go. They're not allowed within 300 feet of children, and it goes on and on. So I read these guys all that, and I said, so why couldn't you just have a separate something for them when there's nobody here? Now, you would think that was the easiest argument in the world, wouldn't you? Well, they said, well, well, they can't be involved in the life of the church. Wait a minute. Well, let's just talk about your liability, because if you allow this, I'm guarantee you, you can't follow six people. Five guys and that guy. So it'd be six people. So it'll take 12 people to follow them everywhere they go, including the bathroom. So do you want to do that? They said, not on your life. So now they were considering it because the, we want to minister to them was their argument. But why can't you minister to them when children are not on your campus? So finally the pastor said, so what do you think? And they said, well, we've changed our mind. It's a bad idea. Now listen, it took somebody besides their pastor to convince them. It took somebody outside of their world to come in and say, here's what will happen and here's what you got to do. So I asked the deacons, do you want to follow these guys around? Which of you? And they said, well, we don't want to do it. 
So you can see it quickly fell apart. But my question is, why would you even want to take a chance on such a thing happening? I mean, I, I don't, but in the name of ministering to these guys, but I said, there's no ministering to these guys. Abusers come in the door. Now, 20 years ago, I was already preaching this at a church in Apex that I restarted. And a lady heard me say this. Now, we didn't let anybody, we didn't let anybody serve in our church in any capacity for one year. So when you came, the clock started. When you joined, you had to go one year, which is whether you mowed the grass or whether you kept the nursery, one year. So I always said, listen, abusive people won't stay one year. And the lady walked up to me and said, I work for social services. And you're just wrong. People who are hardcore abusers will wait forever if they think there's a chance that they will be able to have access to your kids. They will outweigh your year. And I thought, oops. So now most churches have a minimum of six months. And that's a good rule, that you need six months before you allow anybody. So this is what most churches do. So uh, my rule was you have to take experience in God with me, and you have to be here a year. And people said, but I was at another church where I served like immediately. But that was that church. You know, we never had an accusation once. Although a little girl at vacation Bible school did walk up to me one time and I said, your dad coming tonight? She said, you're my daddy. I said, wait, wait, back up now. Get it. She was kidding, but I said, don't say that because, you know, people will misread what you're talking about. So number seven, train your leaders to understand and be on the lookout for abuse. Send them to a ministry, ministry safe conference. It will scare you to death. And they will talk about the liability. They'll talk about what you're not noticing, which is. Oh, this one's scary. An abusive person will often, will often woo the leaders first before they woo the, the person they want to abuse. They will get the, the leaders to say, I really trust them. Now, they've just broken down the first wall of access. So often they're hooking the, they're hooking the leaders, trying to get them to trust, but their whole goal is to have access to somebody else. Watch it when somebody walks in the door. And they are really, really friendly. And they want to serve somewhere immediately. And they're going to woo you before they woo the kids. And I never even thought about this. So have you ever had somebody that you immediately trusted, but they just came there? You need to be very careful about that because you don't really know who they are. So here's where we were a second ago. Call in an expert. Churches do a lot better sometimes on a really touchy subject if you invite somebody to come in and speak to your church. You can call me. I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, but we can find some, but I can be as expert as I can in this area. This is So the churches do a lot better because the, the topic is so difficult. Now, I have a pastor who reported a church member who was in his church for 50 years who happened to be his father. Yes. Now, see, it started with a touch on a granddaughter who was 15 that he'd never touched, but he put his hand on her bare leg. And so she came home and told her dad, who was the pastor, and he went, wow, that's really strange. So he asked the other daughter, who was younger, and she said, well, that has happened. So he asked a cousin. Well, that did happen to me a long time ago. He kept expanding the circle until he eventually called the police and had his father arrested. Now you're talking about tearing down a church. Now, we talked about this a long time before he ever did this. And I did say over and over again, are you sure you want to do this? He has torn his family to shreds. But he is very proud of the fact that he has caught a person who apparently has systematically abused so many people that nobody can believe it. He finally left the church and left his relatives there. He finally left the church and moved a long ways away because the people in the church and in the community are very angry at him. But his dad is the person who has victimized so many people. The story is so difficult to hear. Um, so when he called me and started telling me, I was, you know, a asking me what he should do. 
And so it took him a year before he finally said anything. And the person who knew it all along, now there was one person who knew it all along, and that was the mother. So when people had told her over the years that your husband has, she always said, oh, no, no, no. She knew the truth all along, though. She knew the truth from the very beginning, but she knew it would tear everything apart in their lives. So call in an expert. Let's call somebody to come and help your church to do this well. So let's properly deal with accusations now. Because accusations are going to come. First of all, I think you should believe the victim when they tell you it happened. So I was, we were on a mission trip in 2001. Our first foreign mission trip in this church. And something happened on the mission trip. I, we were in Europe uh, at a refugee camp. Uh, for people all over the world who had been thrown out of their countries for religious and political purposes. And the second night we were there, we were near Waterloo. So, you know, Napoleon, Bonaparte, and this uh, all of his um, escapades through that area of the world. So this is where we were, and we were just in our second night, and um, somebody knocked on the door about midnight and came to our door and said, uh, Eddie, now, the lady said, there was a couple, they said, you know, there's a number of couples with us, but a one of our men from our church, because we had two churches there, one of the men in our church keeps touching me on the breast the whole time. Wait, what? Explain it to me. She said, so wherever we go, I have to demonstrate it for you. Wherever we go, he stands like this next to me, and he touches my breast like this. <clears throat> And she said, so you going to believe me or not believe me? So there's the husband and wife in, in our hotel room saying, now these two couples happen to be friends. So we gotta, I got a decision to make right now. Do I believe her or do I, do I believe her? And this guy is really a stand-up guy. So I said, you know what? I have no reason not to believe what you're telling me is true. Why would you come and make up such a crazy story when they're your friends? So I didn't do anything because we're 6,000 miles away from home. And if I say anything right then, I said, can you just stay away from him the rest of the trip? And I asked her husband, can you just get between them? And so two weeks after we got home, I decided this is what I do when I want to confront somebody. I'll take them to a restaurant where I know that they won't lose their cool. I was wrong. Because when we told him, me and, me and the husband, we didn't invite the women to come. We just wanted to confront him. And so he lost his cool and he said, Eddie, this is your fault. You should have told me right then. No. So this is what people do that are guilty. They look for other people to blame very quickly and they're going to stick to their story. And so we brought in three of our elders into the church for four nights. And we went through this story with just him and his wife that couple, and me and two other, two other deacons. He never said a word. All those nights, he never says anything. His wife does all the talking. And who does she blame? Me. Me, the whole time. You're the worst pastor ever. I was a great pastor like before we went to them, you know, but now I'm the worst. This is your fault. And just went on and on and on and on and on. And so after all these nights, they said, you're going to tell us right now who you believe. I said, I'm going to tell you who I believe right now, that I believed all along. I believe her. We're going to leave your church. And people are going to want to know where we went. You want me to tell them? <laughs> people did ask where they went. So two years goes by, and they uh, adopted a couple kids. And so we go over to their house. Now... I don't like, see, when I'm pastor and people leave us in bad, I don't like that. So if you hate me, fine, but let me forgive you for hating me. So let's just fix this. We're, you know, let's figure it out. So we go to the house. We, we spend uh, two hours there, uncomfortable hours, ooing and eyeing over their children. When we got ready to leave, my wife is still holding one of the children, and he walks me to the door like this, where I'm thinking, let's go. We've been here two hours, and we've talked it out all we know how to. And so at the door, he says this to me. Nobody else here heard it. He said, you know this is why I was thrown out of another church before we came to yours. Somebody made an accusation in that church against me too. I got you. 
I knew you were guilty all along, but now I really know you're guilty because you just made a confession. I didn't say a word. Now, all those people who were in that room two years ago who all wondered what happened, you think I kept that quiet? Absolutely not. Now, it took me a few years because I then left the church, not over that, over other things. It was just time to go after all those years. But I went and told every person in the room exactly what he told me because he's accountable for those actions. But, you know, I am so glad because all the way back to the hotel room in Europe, when it came down to this, who you're going to believe, that's where I could have blown it. But you know what? I think you should believe the victim. Now, you're saying, but what if the victim is lying about it? That does happen, but not much. If they are lying about it, you'll straighten it out. You'll figure it out. I think you should believe the victim. Now, my wife and I have done counseling for pastors and their wives and their children forever. And so, but the, this is the one that really still makes me personally angry. A lady about 45 came a couple of years ago and met with my wife and I. Now, I didn't know her. Her father is the associate pastor of one of the largest megachurches. She came and sat down and said, this happened to me. When I was a little child, my father was the associate pastor there then. He was there like 30 years. And so the school bus dropped her off every day at the church after school because she had nowhere else to go. Her mom also worked there in some type of secretarial role and her dad's associate pastor. She had two hours there every day after school. She said the janitor, the custodian at the church, sexually abused me for those two years. Ma'am, tears just start running down my face. Do you think I believe her? Of course I do. Why wouldn't I? But she said, you know, when I got to be a teenager, I told my mother and father this happened. And they said, you will never speak of that again. That is such a reputable man. So from the time she's 15, for the last 30 years, she's tried to tell her parents that this happened, and they say it did not happen, and we want you to stop this, telling this. This woman is completely destroyed by this, simply because the two most important people in her life said it never happened. Now, I just got to tell you, this is often the case. It is the people closest to you who happens to know the other person who often does the most denying. So you'll have to make a decision very quickly about who you believe. But you know what? I almost believe the victim every time because I'll, we'll sort that out. And usually when we do have to deal with all that, I discover underneath that they were ex- it happened exactly like they said. And I'm not saying every time it will, but you're going to have to make a very... Now, here's where pastors call and they're confused over this issue right here. You must call legal authorities, police or DSS, when the victim is a minor. If they're not a minor, nobody has to call the police. But this is, pastors have, are struggling with understanding this. If they're a minor, you have to call the police, even if it, and then there's no statute of limitations. So if this was 30 years ago and you, they came and told you, somebody's got to call the police. If you don't and you cover it up, it's a crime. Now, if they're over 18, this is not you that needs to deal with this now. Now, they're going to have to deal with this somehow. But if it's, they come and tell you, you know, that, you know, you know, they're a child and their parents come and tell you, this is what has gotten our Southern Baptist Convention such out water because people came and told their pastor who did nothing. Now, here's what I've seen so many times. So when the church calls me and says, Ed, we got a problem, they tell the pastor who tells the deacons and it dies right there. It never goes any further than that. You know what? Because sometimes it is one of the men sitting around the table, and so they're just going to bury it. Now, that's a crime. Now, what we've said is any church that does this, any Southern Baptist church that does this, we will expel them. So I tell them now when they call, we will, we will catch up with you, and you're in danger of being thrown out of the convention for some reason if you don't deal with this. So it's not just something you might want to do to knowingly cover it up now as a crime. But I had a young pastor, one of our youngest pastors, he's about 22, who called me a year ago and said, a mom just called him, she, their daughter who was eight was sexually abused at church, he said, what do I do? I said, here's what I think you should do. You go over to the house, you call the police, let the police meet you there. He said, are you sure? You know, I'm really young here. That's exactly what he did. The police came and said, pastor, we are so proud of you. We'll deal with it from here. 
Now, you don't have to do anything else. You see, I think pastors are afraid to do this because they're thinking, well, my goodness, I'm going to have to be involved in all this. No, no, it's not. You're just the reporting agency. You're not going to have to deal with all this. So you're, you know, but if you don't deal with it, and so here we got a 22-year-old pastor who's doing what many pastors don't have the courage to do. And so he called me and left me a message. He didn't get me. He called me and said, he was so excited. He said, I did it. And he said, I'm so relieved, but I actually am very proud because I didn't know if the police would even believe me because I'm so young, but they believed. And then they arrested one of the people at church. Now the church is, you know, the church is really hurting over that. So you have to call somebody if the person is under 18. So number four, remove the accused immediately from their position of responsibility. Immediately. If somebody says your youth pastor has sexually abused somebody, they took a girl home and touched her, then you call him and take him out of his position of responsibility right now. You can sort it out later, but you shouldn't leave them in that position. You say, but gosh, what if he's not guilty? You'll, You'll sort that out. But to leave them in that position just allows them to continue to do what they're doing. And so just take them out right now, and then you can begin to deal with what happened. But one of the things, now you saw the number in the video where it says 700 people were abused. I'm not trying to belittle that at all. Do you know how small a number that really is based on how many pastors and workers that we have in our churches? That number is so little, but that didn't excuse any of them. Not one. And so in the past, we have not done a good job of reporting or doing anything about this. So often this is what happens. Don't simply tell the deacons or elders and let it drop. Pastors have told me often, this is just hard work, you know. But inaction, because it's hard, is not any excuse. But often they tell the deacons and the deacons say, we can't do anything about that. Now, the church I grew up in, in Charlotte, we did have this happen twice and nobody ever mentioned it. It was only when somebody went to court for another reason that they saw one of the men in our church was there because he had sexually abused people. And they, somebody called me and said, pray it doesn't come out in the paper. I said, no, I'm going to pray it does. It didn't, though. This man had systematically abused all of his children, all of his grandchildren, and a number of kids at church. And the church member said, pray it doesn't get in the paper because it's going to make our church look bad. Well, we got to stop him from doing it one more time. Now, in this case, he did get 10 years worth of jail time, but he died before he could finish all of that. No, this sounds awful, doesn't it? Nobody was sad that he died because this man had abused so many people we didn't know anything about it. Now, nobody at the church did anything about it. No pastor who obviously knew it ever said a word to anybody about it. We were never warned, and our children at that age were in the nursery back there where his wife was always keeping the nursery. So... You can see how dangerous that really was. Nobody ever mentioned it. We need to provide resources for survivors, and there are a lot of them. Um, I think we ought to, if somebody needs counseling, let's find some resources to send them there. There's some really good counselors today, and there's a lot of great resources for people who've been sexually abused. Number seven, when there's been a healing... I don't mean it happened last week and now today they're going to give a testimony. But invite abuse survivors to publicly share their testimony. Not only does it help the survivor, but it allows the church the opportunity to understand and empathize and it also warns potential abusers that we are not going to tolerate this sin. So we're going to have to get a lot tougher. But I think what we need to do is learn. We need to see good policies and good procedures We need to learn to take a stand over it. So now let's have any questions, because that's the end of my PowerPoint. I wanted to give you a a few minutes to ask any questions that you might have. So, Eddie, has has the State Baptist Convention considered doing seminars just on this, where multiple churches can come together to start formulating their policies and procedures like he's looking for? Smaller churches can get together and maybe share with each other. Ministry safe is the place to do that, Rich. Ministry Safe is the best at the country in this, and they know exactly all the details where we're going to have 
you know, we're not experts in this area, but this is why we're doing it today, just so people can be aware that this is a serious issue. But Ministry Safe, you can look at their website, and they will come and do whatever. Now, they're not free, but they just did a conference here. They're going to do another one in the spring, I think, here in Greensboro. So when you see it or hear it, please come. Uh, they're the best in the country, also the largest. They're in Dallas, Texas, and um, they've made a living off teaching churches how to do this well. Yes, sir. Background checks. Um, do you go through an organization to assist in the background checks, or do you actually facilitate the background screening? First Point Resources in Greensboro. First Point Resources. They charge seventeen dollars for a full background check, about eleven dollars for something just a little less than that, but it's really inexpensive. So you can just go onto their website. We use it before we hire anybody at the convention. First Point Resources. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's really inexpensive. Uh, some years ago, these were a hundred dollars, and now we can do them for seventeen because they do such a large number of them. So, but again, we should have their permission before we uh, do a background check. Yes, Keith. I was wondering, have there been people who have denied the church to have a background report on, and you were able to do one anyway? Yes. Uh, I did a full background check on a potential youth pastor, and he had seven federal tax liens. And so I said, so you want to handle our church's money? So are you, you are going to pay that money back? He said, absolutely not. We're, we're not going to hire you then. I didn't realize so many cuss words could come out of one guy, a potential youth pastor. So, again, that was my fault, of course. So, but you know what? But I called it before we hired him. It's so hard to catch somebody after you hire them. So this, But you know what? I'll tell you why churches don't do background checks on potential pastors. This is the order. I've heard it so many times. Now, Lifeway said last year that only one out of seven churches does a background check before they hire a pastor. But you know, when I ask the church after a mess, they always say they did. Then they say they didn't. And I'll say, just tell me why you didn't. I'm curious. This is what they always say. We found somebody we liked so much. We just couldn't turn it down now. So I was here in Greensboro uh, two years ago helping a church. And my phone rang. And a lady said this to me. I think I'm sleeping with one of your pastors here in Greensboro. What? Wait, I- I'm confused. She said, I didn't know he's a pastor till today. Uh, he has sent me all these sex messages which she sent to me, unfortunately, to prove. Now, he had given his driver's license. He told her he was an FBI agent. He had a gun and a badge. But we later found out he had been a Methodist pastor, and they had fired him for the same thing. So when I met with the church, no, he worked there eight months. So he had told this woman and many others that he was an FBI agent, and he was looking for sex on Facebook, and all these women were happy. He even sent messages back to them asking them was this the greatest sex they ever had and so she was so curious after sleeping with him twice who he was so she runs a reverse google image search and what pops up the church's website that's when she calls me i think and she's so embarrassed and so he only worked there one more day after i went and met with the church now who did he blame for this Me. Matter of fact, he said he would sue me over this and us. Uh, We didn't fire him, though. He was thinking of the Methodists who fired him, you know. We don't fire people. The church fired him. So I went and sat down with the the, um, pastor search committee, and I said, did you run a background church? And the woman said, we did. Not. Now that I think about it. Why? Because he's so charismatic. We, We wanted this guy... After searching for a pastor for two years, he called us and said, I just moved to the area. I'm looking for a church. And this is how it got started. And they did not run a background check. They would have found out easily, easily that he'd been fired from the Methodists before. But see, not doing any background checks or screenings is what's getting trouble, uh, churches in trouble. Now, you can do it after you hire them, but I'm telling you, you've already let the Hen out of the hen house. Now, that sounds like I grew up in the city, so that's, I'm not sure that was right. But anyway. What do you mean you can't do it? You can't check. You can, but what are you going to do now? Instead of not hiring him, you have to fire them. Now, that's going to create 
whatever in your church. So it would have been a lot better to run a background check first for a potential staff member. Now for church members, if you discover that a church member, and this happens, if you discover that a church member might be on the sexual offender register, you're not going to stand up at church and say, we caught one. No, you're privately, not the pastor. You're going to have a small group of two or three people who are just going to sit down with them and say, this is what we found. Now, what do, you, what, what do we need to do about this? How often are you rescreening? We, if we could just get somebody to do the first screen, but you brought up a good point. There are people who offend while they're employed. And so I don't have an answer for that one. I don't know the answer. Do you have a suggestion? You've worked in church life a long time. Different things, and I, I, we used to have a policy of four years, but I'm hearing people say now that's too much. You know, I, I don't know, but I'll tell you, we, we went back and re screened everybody this year, and we spent some money to do so. But I tell you, it's, it's with everything that's going on, you ain't spent no money if you spent the kind of money we spent compared to what you would. Well, that's exactly right. What does, it, what does a court case cost the church? What will it cost then in your reputation? Yes, sir. So I'm in charge of the background checks now for our church, and we're screening. We screen all of our volunteers who work with minors, and, and we're doing a two-year. Uh, and so I have the we use the ministry safe, and so I'm able to track when they when they were last screened, and I have a list that I keep track of who's coming up on two years, who's past two years, who needs to be rescreened. So we're doing it every every two years. I think if you build it into the DNA of it to begin with, then that's not going to be an issue. Have on our website, church website, there's a link that the person goes to. They fill in their information. That prompts us to run the check. So that's their their permission to for us to, to run the check. So, uh, so you can see how Ministry Safe has already built in these safeguards for you. You don't have to remember they're doing it for you. This is how good this is. Yes, sir. Perhaps you can speak of this for clarity. But we we brought in uh, some of the local police who deal with this, and one of the things they told us is. Um, that having a written statement that your church has along with the background check saying I have never been convicted of or uh, accused of sexual abuse, harassment, so on and so forth, and then signing it to, to have it in the paperwork that says I have actually asked them specifically about abuse goes a long way as opposed to just having, because like the, the background check just means they've been caught. Yes. But to have a statement saying that they have indeed not been accused of or convicted of um, goes a long way in protecting your church. Well, here's one of the tricky things. I, I like what you said. Here's one of the tricky things. Many people have been arrested for this but never convicted, and their name doesn't show up anywhere. They got a lighter sentence. They might have been convicted, but they pled it down to a misdemeanor. It doesn't even show up anywhere. So you can see there are people who can work their way around the system if they want to. We love to have new people come to our church, don't we? We love that. I mean, we want that. But now we're saying, hey, we need to be cautious of everybody who does, which is not a good feeling for us. Yes, sir. What is our obligation when we have found someone in our church that you know is registered or has previously offended, and they go out, and then we hear that they have started another church we have an obligation to call that church and tell this person? Can I just tell you, this is personal. I do every time. I, when a pastor has had an affair with a woman at the last church, when he wants to go to the next church, I call them. And it is not illegal to do so. We're not talking about what's normal or legal in a business world, in a nonprofit world. We, matter of fact, we should. Do you know how many pastors pass along people to another church? And how many, excuse me, how many churches pass along pastors and other people to another church to get rid of them because they didn't want to deal with this? I call them every time, every time. So I, somebody needs to tell them. Now, I'm going to get in trouble one day doing that. I feel like I have a moral and a reason before the Lord, though, to tell what I know. And I do have people who push back sometime and say, I heard that you're the one who called. You got it exactly right. I did. So I've had four or five people in the 12 years say, want to sue me, and I always say this. You go right ahead, because I know you can't. So if you want to, go ahead. And so their threat is over. That's always the threat. But I think that we have to watch that very carefully. So yes, ma'am. It wasn't listed on your book, but I'm sure you've heard of This Little Light by Krista Brown. 
I think it's an excellent book on the topic. It's written by a survivor of abuse at the Baptist church. And in fact, in that situation, that pastor had been passed along by churches that just gave a neutral reference or said, well, it's not my problem because he's not at our church anymore, and they didn't call the cops. Um, and he abused just dozens and dozens of girls. Um, so it's a really good survivor account. And then the other thing is, if you are passing along a bad reference, remember that truth is a defense to defamation of character. Yes, absolutely. So I, what I'm, I'm going to end it with this. I always say when somebody's accused of it, this is not the first time. This is probably the hundredth time. It's not, it's not the first. There's probably been a, a series of them. So don't think, oh, well, he just did this once. No, he's probably done it a hundred times. And he just got caught now. So it's not like, well, if he just apologizes to the victim, that, that won't work. So... Well, you know, there's probably 2,000 people here at this event, but you're the ones who came. I'm very proud of you because awareness of this is just really, really critical. As we go forward, I'm telling you, if we won't hold ourselves accountable, the press is going to. So who do we want to hold us accountable, God or CBS News or NBC News? And they're going to. So why don't we hold ourselves accountable instead? Uh, your, your church will be known as the church uh, who did some really tough things, but they did it in love and because you loved your people. After all, like we read in the verse, this is Jesus's church, not yours. And he died for this church. So we ought to treat his bride uh, like we should. So uh, when it says that we shouldn't all become teachers because we're going to receive a stricter judgment, we have no idea what all that means. So you know what? I'll just be honest as we leave. I'd rather be tough on somebody. I'd rather be tough on somebody even though I'm a person of grace, I'd rather be tough and be wrong. I'd just rather be tough and be wrong, and I can apologize if they didn't do it. But you know what? I'm going to protect all those other people out there. I'm not going to protect the one. We never protect one for the crowd. We protect the crowd for one. That's Andy Stanley, not Eddie. It sounded really good, though. That's Andy Stanley. We never protect just one person and sacrifice the whole crowd. We sacrifice one if we have to. Let's pray together. Father, we have talked about a very difficult subject. But Lord, you must weep over the people in not just our churches, but all churches, Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, all churches, where people are allowed to come for the sole purpose is because they want to take advantage of somebody. Lord, let that not be said in our church. And if we find it out, let us learn to do the right thing because it won't be easy. It's going to be difficult. They will get blamed themselves because I know what that feels like. Lord, I can look back at every one of those and be so proud that I did the right thing in the face of such criticism. But you know what? All that was worth it, though, because now I don't have to hang my head and say I, I didn't say something because I did say something I've been a few times, Lord, I overdid it or got it wrong, but most of the time I didn't. And I'm glad of the people behind me who pushed me and, told, and made me do the right thing. I didn't always want to do it, and they made me do it. And I'm so grateful for them. So as this group goes, Father, if there are people here in this room who have been the victims of abuse, Lord, I know that you can heal the most broken things. There's nothing that you can't heal. You died for that pain. And Lord... Forgiveness goes a really long ways. And so, Lord, help us to hold people accountable for their actions, whether it's easy for us or not. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Thank you for coming.